0: episode 350, employers direct contracting with hospitals in real life. Today, I am speaking with Katie Talento. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Today, I'm talking about direct contracting, IRL, in real life with Katie Talento. This is a conversation that's more about the reality of direct contracting than the theory of direct contracting. And this was not an accident. So much of healthcare transformation is really easy to say and much harder to actually do. So direct contracting. In the context we discuss today, generally direct contracting means when an employer or their benefits consultant more likely hooks up with a provider organization, lots of times a hospital or a health system. Moving forward here, I'm just going to say employer when I sort of really mean the employer and their TPA and their repricer, you know, the constellation of consultants and other vendors that are working with the employer. So just for simplicity, the employer says to the provider organization, hey, let's cut out the middleman here. Middleman likely being some insurance carrier. I will just pay you directly and it will be a win win because no one is sucking out up to like 15 to 20% right out of the middle. And also, I'll steer my employees slash patients slash members your direction, which is great for us as a self insured plan because money saved. And also because I've done some quality analytics and I think you're good, relatively good at delivering care. So I'm happy to help my members find you. The employer will, in general, broad strokes, the employer will pay the provider organization some percentage over the Medicare rate for procedures or codes or bundles. By the way, the dollar amount over Medicare for the bundles or procedures or codes can vary depending on factors like, you know, what service line it is. Because unlike RBP, reference-based pricing, direct contracting is a negotiation. It's a two-way deal. RBP, reference-based pricing, a lot of times is the payer slash employer deciding what they're going to pay and then paying it without sitting around a table with the provider figuring all this out together. So if only from this one dimension, direct contracting is something that you'd think that hospitals slash health systems slash providers would be kind of into and up for. One thing that I didn't really understand before this conversation is that if we're talking about an employer direct contracting with, say, a hospital, the list of direct contracted procedures or codes or bundles might include pretty much all of the services that the hospital can perform. But in general, the employer is only going to steer members there or make it financially attractive to go to the hospital for, for example, emergency or unavoidable procedures. Why? Because no employer wants patients going to the hospital for things that they could get a whole lot cheaper in an outpatient setting with no less quality. So unless a hospital is willing to compete on price with other care settings, then an employer is not going to steer their members there. If you're a hospital, you might take this as a con. But on the other hand, consider that if there's a few hospitals in the area, the general direction will be to go to the one with the direct contract. Furthermore, if a plan is going to steer members, they're going to steer them, whether they have a direct contract with you or not. Katie makes one point early and often throughout this conversation. From a hospital perspective, doing a direct contract is and should be pretty easy. From an employer perspective, too, there should not be a lot of disruption or friction for employees. There doesn't need to be. Done right, it should be a win-win for the employer, provider, and most of all, the patient who doesn't get stuck with high bills, balance bills, and lower quality care than might be available To them through their benefits. Katie goes through the steps to create a direct contract and the challenges she has faced along the way. We also get into the wonderful world of pay viters. So you could consider this an extension to the episode with Jeb Dunkelberger, episode 348 from last month. My guest today, Katie Tolento, started out as an infectious disease epidemiologist, which I did not realize. She ended up doing public health policy. She's worked on Capitol Hill for various senators and in the last administration as health policy lead. Katie is the CEO of All Better Health and works with the Health Rosetta Organization. She is a benefits advisor for employers who are looking to create better health plans that reduce costs dramatically while at the same time improving benefits. I mean, you can only do that in healthcare, right? Where there's basically no relationship between price and quality. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Katie Talenzo, welcome to Relentless Health Value.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Stacey.
0: Welcome to the private sector. Thank you. So let's talk about direct contracting, which I know is something that you've spent a good deal of time working on. If you were just going to summarize the why here from a self-insured employer standpoint to do something that's a little bit forward thinking, like why are people doing this?
1: For the employer, it's obviously to save money. We also, of course, aim for higher quality providers whenever we can. We want to be able to provide cost-sharing free plans for our employers. And the way to do that is to get lower rates at the places where we have contracts. So if we have a contract, we have a lower rate and we'll steer all our volume there. And then we waive cost sharing for those beneficiaries, which is the point, right? We want the employer to save money, but we also want the patients to save money. And the way to steer them is to do that. For the hospital... The most important reason to do this is to start to build the system of the future where a hospital system is not so dependent on the carriers that they hate so much. When you talk to a hospital, you know, their sort of enemy number one is the carriers who who they think are screwing them or whatever. Well, the way to get around those all these middlemen that are taking their cut and blaming you (laughs) for your high prices is to just cut them out, right? This is cutting out the middlemen. When you directly contract, one of the main benefits you get is that you don't have to chase patients or spend time billing them or, God forbid, sending patients to collections and lawsuits, which is a massive reputational risk, not to mention being you know, immoral and indefensible or whatever. But the way out of that system is to contract directly with the group to agree to steer their members to you with no cost sharing. You cut out those middlemen you hate and you let the group's uh, benefits advisor like me negotiate that contract for you. And we don't even take a cut for doing it from you, right? We're paid by the group.
0: So that's an advantage of cutting out cost shifting, which is that if you're the provider on the other ends of that, I forget some crazy percentage of patient thirty
1: to forty percent is chasing patients. Right? If you come in and you try to get a cash price, it's thirty to forty percent lower. That's the price of all that billing bureaucracy.
0: Wow. So if I'm a hospital and I do direct contracting, and part of that direct contracting is that there's no patient copay or co-insurance of any kind, then basically. Even if that was it, my revenue would go up.
1: <laughs> exactly. And you don't have all the risk. Another reason, this is sort of a little bit of an underground movement right now, but another reason to avoid the usual carrier approach is the growing 501R movement. I don't know if you know about this, but the, you know, the ACA requires and the tax code section 501R requires nonprofit hospitals to basically charge patients who would otherwise qualify for their financial assistance program you can't charge them for their out-of-pocket costs, anything more than generally billed amounts or amounts generally billed, some acronym, <laughs> government speak. That rate includes VA and Medicaid and Medicare. So that is a much lower rate than your carrier negotiated rate. You technically can't charge an insured patient whose income is low for out-of-pocket balance billing or deductibles or co-pays. You can't charge them the, the carrier rate. But most hospitals do and they get away with it. We're looking into automating this 501R integration into our plan so that we will always have that patient apply for financial assistance and get as part as an automated part of the process to get a lower rate on their cost sharing. We're starting to look at that. There are some vendors that are starting to do this and sell it to self-insured employers, that is a huge risk for hospitals. The same types of plans that are looking to integrate 501R automatically into their plan are the same ones that want to contract with you. And we'd much rather just contract with you than have these sort of shenanigan end runs with financial assistance. We do have the same problem with pharma and their manufacturer assistance programs. We, we'd rather not put our insured patients through your manufacturer assistance program for our low-income patients. We'd much rather just contact with a pharma company directly and get a good price, a fair price on the drug. It's the same thing for a hospital.
0: I mean, I think the, the benefits for an employer are pretty self-evident. But if we're thinking about yeah. things from a hospital, there's kind of like an offensive and then also sort of this risk mitigation rolled into one here. On one hand, you actually don't have to worry about collecting from patients, which obviously, based on what we've just been talking about, is notoriously challenging. But then also, if they don't start thinking about things in new ways or working with these employers who are moving forward with them or without them, then there's a big potential downside there because this 501R. The more that gets automated, they're going to be working with these employers whether they want to or not.
1: They're going to be giving better rates whether they want to or not, right? Like, that's the real issue. Another movement that's still underground is the idea of an employer-owned hospital. So I have friends in the benefits advisor space that are working on bringing together their book of business of employer clients and building a hospital in their town that they own and that, that the doctors are salaried, no one's doing any sort of shenanigans or you know extra billing. And their, their rates that they're looking at are under Medicare rates.
0: Wow. So this is sort of similar to the Civic RX, which is going on in the pharma space, which is a bunch of hospitals, yes. actually, who are like, we're just going to stand up yes. our own pharma company because enough of this. And so it sounds like the community is building their own employer-owned hospital. I had on... Someone from America's agenda, it was the union who stood up their own primary care practices. So it kind of sounds like that right. that sort of same idea that, you know, if the purchaser is the one that is standing up the care delivery network, then you don't have to fight to get a discount because you're actually capturing the margin yourself.
1: This type of thing is going to happen in towns where there's a dominant health system that's over. Christ, and so imagine if the employers in that town get together and build their own hospital. What that's going to do to that dominant hospital? This is the future. I think it's the future. Hospitals want too. I don't think that hospitals love the land that they're living in with with carriers and and GPOs and PBM. You know, they, they're not excited about the broken status quo either.
0: I think a lot of times. We talk about hospitals or we talk about payers, like some sort of monolithic entity, but it's people within those institutions who are actually making decisions, these decisions. You know, somebody within the hospital loves the current status quo, otherwise they would change it. So it's kind of interesting to think about who those individuals are, because somebody's very motivated here to maintain the status quo. But then you start talking about the physicians or you start talking about the people who actually are dedicated to improving patient care, And not so much, you know, like they're not quite as on board with this. But I think a lot of times they feel like they don't have any other choices or or options.
1: People often ask me, having been in government, like, who are the worst villains, right, in the healthcare space? Is it pharma? Is it carriers? Is it hospitals? Is it private equity-owned docs? And honestly, my answer is hospitals because their prices are the ones that have soared with no relationship to in- to inflation or any sort of rational or defensible benchmark over the past 10 years. That is the primary driver of increased costs. It's not drug pricing, it's hospital prices is it, it, the dr- primary driver of increased costs for patients and employers and unions and taxpayers of the four entities that actually pay for healthcare. If hospitals think that government isn't coming for them, I mean, government just came for pharma. They're setting prices now. You know, we've really crossed a Rubicon. And if hospitals think that they're not on the menu next, I would urge them to be at the table instead of on the menu.
0: It's like $1 trillion or something like that goes to hospitals right now. That's a chunk of change. So this employer-owned hospital that we're talking about here, is that relegated to, you know, the biggest of jumbo employers? Like, could a whole bunch of small employers actually manage that? It just, it sounds like, you know, 65% of any hospital's spend is fixed cost. It costs like a million dollars in California to install a bed just based on all the regulations and stuff. Like, this is a, a pretty substantial endeavor. What does it take for a community to figure out how to do this?
1: Right. Well, I mean, it depends on what kind of employers you have in a a community. I think about my community. I live outside of Washington, D.C. It's a company town and the company is always growing and everybody works for the government or the contractor. But the contractors, you know, they all have carrier plans. They're all getting screwed. And when you have 100 person employees, 500,000, you get you know, 20, 30, 40 of those together. Some advisors that I talk to or that I work with, they have that kind of book in their community. It is a real possibility. I have a, a colleague I'm familiar with who who started this process. They were just going to build an ASC. And, you know, as they started getting into it, they thought, well, why, why not have an emergency room? Well, why not do some acute care? You know, it just started growing. It's easier than you think. And the fixed cost that the hospitals claim they have may not be so fixed when you've got a different incentive structure working. If you think about, I can't remember if it was someone on your show who, who first said this, where I heard it, a hospital should not be a freestanding profit center, right? Like that was kind of the thinking behind Kaiser Permanente, I guess. A hospital is a failure of healthcare. <laughs> it should. It alone should not be profitable. We don't want a hospital to be profitable. Now, that's not the system we live in. The system we live in is that these are freestanding entities that have to have a profit or nonprofit entities that have to pay the bills and build their new parking garages. So we have the system we have, but why do we have to live with it? We don't have to. It doesn't have to be this way. When you realign the incentives such that Employers are starting to do this. They don't need profit. They don't want profit in this piece of their plan. They're happy to pay independent doctors and pharmacies and specialty practices and PT and imaging center. They're happy to pay those guys to profit and have their own you know built hospital that is not a profitable piece of their plan. Now oh, again, this, is, this isn't a reality yet, right? This is happening, but it it hasn't launched.
0: Just given everything that is going on with private equity, buying all of these physician practices, you have to think to yourself, why are all these unicorn billion dollar startups getting into the purchase of retiring physicians, like just gobbling them all up? It's like, there's a lot of money there. Otherwise, they wouldn't be doing it. <laughs> If you're an employer kind of watching that and you're thinking private equity has one goal, which is to make money for shareholders or investors. If an employer is not thinking like, huh, look, this is what's going on in the healthcare environment. There's all this private equity money that's now involved, you know, like maybe they should thinking about getting in on that action because otherwise, you know, they thought the rates last year went up a lot.
1: That's right. That ROI, that's all off employers. It's not off Medicare those rates are fixed. But uh, yeah, I mean, this is the resistance. Ultimately, this is the resistance to that broken, sick, twisted, almost immoral business model.
0: Let's talk about this operationally for for a sec. You know, it's easy. It rolls right off the tongue. Let's do direct contracting. But if I'm an employer and I'm like, let's do this thing, what do I do? Like, what's step one?
1: So step one is you need to have a benefits advisor that, that, that knows how to do this. Unless you're a giant corporation, you have in-house personnel that can do it. Your vast majority of your brokers are just brokers and they get paid by carriers and they have zero interest in this. They're the sales force for carriers. But there are increasingly benefits advisors willing to do this. That's, that's step one
0: get yourself a benefits advisor who has this within their suite of services, direct contracting, then, then what happens?
1: Then you need to get the meeting with the hospital, which in my experience has been the hardest part. That is the hugest challenge out there. I think hospitals... They can make it difficult. I don't know if it's by design. Sometimes it has seemed to be by design. But typically what I'll do is I'll just, if I can't figure out who to talk to, I will stalk the leadership of the hospital on LinkedIn or whatever and just start harassing them for a meeting. (laughs) And that usually works, strangely. It does work. It can work. But, you know, it can be a real nightmare. Let me give you an example. I work with a group of nuns, like Catholic nuns. They're spread out all over the country, so they don't have a ton of leverage. They have a convent here, a convent there. We took them off their BUCA, off-the-shelf plan with a $4,000 deductible, and we saved them 33% in the first year with no deductible or other cost share. But... I had one convent out in Santa Clara, California, where they all went for their care was Palo Alto Medical Foundation owned by Sutter Health. There were some balance bills that had accrued. And, you know, I'm just trying to settle the balance bills and hopefully use that process to engage in a larger contracting conversation because that's where the sisters wanted to go. That's where they had been going. So I would rather have them go there rather than disrupting care. But I could not find a single soul at the entire system that I could even talk to about settling balance bills or contracting. It was always just getting thrown around from from one department to another. We'd get referred to some other department, what we call, it's not my department, call this other department. So hours and hours, I, our TPA, our repricer, We all did this dance with Sutter trying to get a human being who could talk to us about settling a balance bill. Eventually, they have sent some of these nuns to collections over balance bills that were a few hundred dollars, nuns with no income. So I am still to this day trying to find a point of contact that I can talk to to settle these balance bills and maybe even do a contract for this little group of nuns so they can stay with the convenience and quality that they liked at Palo Alto. Gosh, if there's anyone in your audience, I implore them, reach out. out of the
0: <laughs> I might be able to introduce you to somebody.
1: <laughs> but um, in the meantime, you know, we now avoid Sutter like the plague, right? But how I started this rant was I eventually said, okay, I got to steer them to somewhere else. So I reach out to Good Samaritan Hospital in the local area. Good Samaritan, that sounds charitable. I was able to get the meeting with the CFO and his team. We had my TPA there and the repricer so that all their questions or concerns about how claims would get paid with this weird, different type of implant, we wanted to answer all their questions with the people that would actually have the answers. So everyone was there. And when we start the meeting, the CFO announces that, well, we can't contract with employer groups like this. It's too hard to add a new payer to all the IT systems. I was just flabbergasted. I mean, you know, could I hire a coder for you? I mean, what? he kind of laughed, but I would have done it. I, I said to him, are you seriously never going to accommodate new self-funded employers? I mean, you know that's the future, right? Like, And he just didn't think it was. He didn't see the demand for it. And maybe in the Bay Area, it's not. But what that tells me is that there are loads of employers in the Bay Area who are getting totally screwed. I should set up a, a satellite office there and, and I'd, we'd start helping them. So for now, you know, our solution is aggressive, direct primary care and indie labs and imaging and ER visits only when necessary. I mean, that that's our solution. You know, of course, these nuns, they qualify for financial assistance. So, you know, when they when it comes to inpatient, I guess, you know, and this is what I said to them, like. You realize our our nuns are Medicaid eligible. They they qualify for waiving all their costs with your financial assistance policy. We actually just want to pay you. We want to pay you.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's probably the quintessential example of a mediocre executive who just wants to work nine to five and go home, you know?
1: I Maybe mean, it is a pain for him to to reprogram all the IT systems. I mean, I don't know, but I would I would argue that for all the reasons we just discussed as to why a hospital should cut out these middlemen and, and build the infrastructure that allows for that, because there are some steps they can take. But you know, for all those reasons, it's well worth him starting to embark on this process.
0: It just kind of goes back to the whole idea, like you don't get fired for hiring IBM. You don't get fired for doing the same thing that your predecessor did last year and the year before and the year before that. And obviously, that is a great oversimplification of the way that business works. But it's largely true. You obviously have administrations of these hospitals who are doing calculus where they're like, this sounds like it is a newfangled thing That sounds difficult. It sounds like it's going to take determination. It sounds like it's going to take courage. It sounds like it's going to take change management. It sounds like it might take an FTE or two. And I just, you know, I just don't have the leadership that it takes, frankly, to embark on something such as this. And also just giving them a little bit of grace. I think this pandemic has taxed a lot of individuals, you know, there, there's that, okay, we'll give them that. But at the same time, coming out of the, the pandemic, they're going to get caught incredibly flat-footed if the rest of the world is moving forward and they're not.
1: It also made me mad. The more mad I get, I start tweeting, you know, <laughs> there's reputational risk. I mean, I'm part of a tribe of Health Rosetta advisors. Between all of us, we have 5 million covered lives and we share information. The first thing I do when I need a contract with the hospital, the first thing I do is I call other advisors and I ask Health Rosetta, hey, have you been able to contract with a certain hospital and who was your POC? And if word gets around that a hospital is you know, just not interested, we will steer everyone away from them.
0: Every year, Health Rosetta and your crew there gets bigger and bigger. Okay, so let's talk about, so let's just say a hospital is amenable and they actually have enough agility to add a new payer to their (laughs) system. Who would have thought that would be a thing? But apparently it is. So they have added the direct contract into their own internal systems. You had mentioned TPA and you had also mentioned a repricer. What's the TPA's role in this?
1: When you negotiated direct contract, the first place I send the signed and executed PDF is to the TPA because they're, they load it into their systems and the repricer loads it into their system so that when a claim comes in from that provider, we don't just do the normal thing we do. On a plan, if we've rented a network, then the normal thing would be using the network rate. If, if we're a reference-based pricing plan, the normal thing would be the plan's allowable amount. So in this case, when it comes in from that TIN, tax ID number, then we're going to use the contracted rate. The repricer has to reprice at that rate and the TPA has to check that work and write the actual check or transfer the money.
0: Got it. And a TPA is a third party administrator. If we just dove right into the acronym without explaining what it was. So you've got the third party administrator who is hired by the employer and then you've got the repricer who tends to be hired by the TPA. I'm pretty sure, right?
1: Well, I have learned by hard experience that it's best to hire the the repricer myself for the on behalf of the employer.
0: And what the repricer is basically doing is when a claim comes in, to your point, you know, the hospital is going to bill based on a charge master rate or whatever the heck they're they're sending. So what the repricer does is they go through and make sure whatever the agreed upon contracted rate is, is the price that actually the TPA winds up paying.
1: That's right. And this is part of any off the shelf carrier plan too. this adjudication process, the the repricing of claims that come in with build charges. It's just that in a plan like we build, you've got different entities doing that same function and they need to be part of the conversation. They have to load the contract, some TPAs and some repricers won't do this. They don't load the contracts that you've negotiated. I never work with TPAs and repricers like that, but I've learned the hard way. And so you have to make sure that that's in your contract. And if they'll load the contract, then great. If not, you can still use a platform like say Coral. I like Coral as a platform that allows you to load your own contracts in and they'll make sure the providers get paid. They take a little fee. I also like Coral or other platforms. If I don't have a contract with a facility and I need one, or I need to find you know, a new replacement in a certain town, I will, I will go to Coral or a different um, platform and see if, if their network of direct contracts might meet my needs. So that's the first place I go, honestly, because it's easier to use them than to negotiate a, a new contract. If I've tried and I and I can't do it, or if I can't do it in time before the patient has the need, then that's what I'll do.
0: There are entities that are springing up across the country that are, are almost like third parties that are doing direct contracts. So you can... It's kind of a new version of a PPO network to a certain broad extent. That's right.
1: They're going around the country, they're entering into direct contracts for themselves, and then they make those contracts available to self-funded employers for a fee. It's important to use platforms that don't charge you a percent off build charges or a so-called percent of savings. So I I always look for a flat fee. I also don't wanna pay a per employee per month rate for constant access. I wanna pay only when I need it. So um, that's one of the reasons I use Coral. They have that kind of fee structure, it works great. I'm sure there are others out there. I don't know. So that's a great tool to be able to access when you don't have time or you can't get the contract done because the hospital won't do it.
0: And I think the other difference maybe between a direct contracting aggregator, let's say, and some of the more traditional PPO, preferred provider networks is that there's the transparency the ones that are legitimately doing this it's very clear to all involved what the rates are
1: that's right and one thing I found in this you know for your hospital audience or the hospitals in your audience is that the, there are these aggregators of direct contracts that do include hospital systems and kudos to those hospital systems for making their bundled prices available and transparently priced in these platforms but Their prices are so egregiously higher (laughs) than an independent outpatient facility. So that's another reason to go direct to independent facilities or for hospitals to start directly contracting with me. If you can give me a good rate or something equivalent to your competitors, then great, let's do that. And we'll leave the platforms behind.
0: What do you think of this headline, Katie? Stripped from the news or whatever that cliche is. There's a headline the other day, Northwell Direct. So Northwell is obviously a gigantic health system in the Northeast. Northwell Direct leads and rides the trend of direct contracting in the self-insured market. That was a headline in healthcare finance news the other day. What do you think about, you know, as someone who has put together these direct contracts, how do you consider a giant health system such as that who is stepping into the direct contracting market with kind of like their own, I'm going to use air quotes here, product?
1: Yeah, I mean, if, if they're willing to talk to me as an employer, great. I will say that there are different colors of this. There can be systems that are these so-called integrated payer slash provider systems, which are, okay, let's be honest, they're kind of a joke in that, you know, let me give you an example. So I've got a group in Michigan that is, you know, when I first talked to them, they had a plan offered through one of these behemoths and they were paying something like Seventeen thousand per employee per year. Seventeen thousand bucks. It was so high; it took my breath away. They were getting so screwed. So, in some ways, this is the perfect. It's like the antithesis of the incentives. (laughs) You know, when the payers and the providers come together to gouge the employers. Dear God in heaven, right? There, there's no downward pressure from a carrier at all on the provider system. Mm -hmm. Now, on the other hand, if you've got a hospital. That is basically marketing themselves as we're going to give you the fair rate, which maybe that's what Northwell is doing. Then they're going to be the first place I stop to steer my members to. I'm going to call them first because it sounds like they want to hear from me and they've made the infrastructure available. And I don't have to stalk their leadership just to find out who to even talk to and get a meeting with.
0: There is all different shapes and sizes of these entities. As you said, if the idea here is to put payers and providers together in an effort to enhance margins... By the way, there was just a gigantic article in Business Insider the other week about how United Health Group is not necessarily using their vertical consolidations to reduce prices. I'm shocked. I know, right? I, I read it and I was like <laughs> clutching my pearls. Well,
1: let me give you an example. So, I, so I'm so i actually covered by one of these here in the DC area. There's, there's one of these. I will not use their name. But I literally just had to threaten to sue the hospital involved in this collaboration for price gouging my husband. So the negotiated rate between this hospital and the carrier was six times the national Medicare rate. So I put up a stink. I said, you you know, I didn't agree to this price in advance because you're not complying with the price transparency rule. I'm going to sue you. And what the fair price is, is 1.5 times Medicare rate. And that's what I paid. So zero out my balance. You know, these incentives are just not properly aligned. And my husband's employer, a big federal contractor called Litos which is the plan we're on, they're just getting a terrible deal with these negotiated rates. They're getting a way worse deal than I could get through hustle and negotiation. So it totally worked. They eventually zeroed out my balance and I paid 1.5 times the Medicare rate. You know, we were still under the deductible. So the cat, the price was all on me. You know, it made me want to call up my husband's HR department and say, people, you guys are getting <laughs> screwed. I just got a better rate than you. And that's all through one of these payer hospital collaborations out here in DC. And so I just am super suspicious. But I will tell you, if Northwell gives me a great price and they make it easy for me to to contact them and to contract with them, I am all in.
0: Which is excellent advice, I think, for hospital systems everywhere, that the more that healthcare prices go up, the more self-insured employers start tinkering around with this, the more fee-based and practical brokers and employee benefit consultants there are out there, the more this becomes an imperative. And, And nothing for nothing, but you know, hospitals just have an X on their back in any number of different ways because more than just you and I have figured out that they have $1 trillion worth of booty that could be up for grabs. So, you know, it, it's not just employers yeah. that are after that. It's also every private equity and startup in the land. If we were going to sum up this whole conversation, Katie, is there any point that you think it's really important to make either directly to employers or to health systems or providers that may be listening?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that makes all this work is having a better benefits advisor that knows how to do all this and that knows the games that are played and and whose incentives are transparent. So the role of the broker is sort of something that we at Health Rosetta talk about a lot. It's sort of this underestimated superpower. But the secret superpower of healthcare is better healthcare based on relationship and incentives is actually the only way to get savings. When you talk about all these so-called innovations between payers and providers and Optum or whatever, you know, they're all just trying to get more revenue from you, the employer. And so if you don't have someone who is truly your agent and, you know, that's what brokers do, they, they market themselves as your agent, but they're paid by the, you know, they're not the buyer's agent. They're paid by the sellers and the sellers have all the wrong incentives. So, you know, I think it's just super important to ask your brokers really hard questions about what their experience is with doing these insurgent types of plans.
0: You need the incentives, but you also need the knowledge. Katie Talento, if someone is interested in learning more about the work that you are doing over at All Better Health, where would you direct them for more info?
1: They can go to our website at allbetter.health. They can contact me directly at Katie K-A-T-Y, at allbetter.health. And I look forward to hearing from folks.
0: Katie Talento, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. My pleasure.